Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You, a podcast for a noob and an expert bold to go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, JG McQuarrie. Say hi, JG. Hey there, Kev. How are you doing this week? Well, I think I'm ready to record a podcast, but there's a distress signal I'm receiving. So I'm wondering if I should fall into this obvious trap, realize it's a trap, and then just kind of still amble around around the trap for most of the episode instead of recording the podcast. <laughs> okay, well, we're just going to have to uh, hope that you can make it back and that you're not going to fall into any very, very, very brightly articulated traps. So this week, we are going to be dealing with Friday's Child. Uh, as always, we have our delightful guest with us. So say hello, Days. Hi. Um, nice, nice to be here with y'all. I'm excited to talk about this with you guys. Well, it's absolutely lovely to have you here, of course. Um, now, as we always do with our first-time guests who are on the show, we like to ask what your history with Star Trek is and what the show means to you. So, uh, yeah, what is Star Trek to you? And, uh, yeah, what has it been in your life? Well, for most of my life, Star Trek has been the thing Lucille Ball did after what I cared about. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because uh, I, I was a I Love Lucy obsessive when I was probably from the good ages of like eight to embarrassingly late in life. Um, but uh, once I got my job uh, at Inverse, I decided, wow, I really need to bone up on my sci-fi stuff. So I've, I've dabbled with Star Trek. I've always been more of a Star Wars kind of person. I, I don't know why. But I've I've always kind of flirted with it, like do a couple episodes of TNG here, a couple episodes of ritual series there, um, just trying to keep keep my thumb on the pulse. But I haven't done a full binge. I, I don't know why I don't feel mentally prepared for that just yet. But I, I, I love this era of television. I love any sort of like episodic storytelling because we don't see that much anymore like a really good episode that feels like a short story is like my ideal how tv should work so star trek is always reliable for that whether or not they 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 actually do that is a, another question but at least the structure is there oh yeah and i mean just speaking about like the structure being there i think especially as we're noticing in like the second season of the show as we go through, as I go through for the first time of my episode is from estates. Um, yeah, that structure becomes such a reliable, like tide lifting all boats, as well as the character stuff, which I think I'll get into more when I discuss my opinion on this episode. But yeah, it is just, I also just said this on blue sky while I was watching the episode, and whether good or bad, every episode of the original series is a lot. And that honestly goes a long way. And maybe not every episode, but very few I've found so far are boring. So, yeah, that it helps. Yeah, absolutely. There's like, there it, it was. There's a different attention economy back then where they couldn't really do filler episodes because that was like the episode you got for the day. Right. Yeah, that's always the way with these shows. Um, and I agree. I kind of really like that episodic structure a lot, which is one of the reasons that I have been watching this show for such a depressingly long period of time. Um, but excellent. Thank you very much. Um, and, well, as we always do, uh, we shall have our summary. So, Kev, would you care to give us our episode summary, please? All right. Uh, the Enterprise is on a diplomatic mission on Capella 4 to negotiate a mining contract. 
there they realize the Klingons have beat them to the punch and there's a Klingon ambassador already there trying to get the contract for their empire. Um, while this happens, a Klingon ambassador inspires an uprising where an, an enterprising like um, cap, like member of the Capella Society murders their leader and tries to take control. This means he has to sacrifice the leader's wife who is pregnant with the former leader's child. Um, this Eileen, uh, played by Julie Newmar, they take her, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy take her away after a whole to-do about how touching her is a sin punishable by death or whatever. <laughs> um, McCoy helps Aline give birth, even though she at first does not want to because the child will belong to no one. Uh, we'll get into all that stuff, of course. But basically, the child is born. Um, the rival leader, uh, Mob, and the Klingon ambassador arrive. The Klingon has taken one of the Federation's phasers. And as Kirk starts to negotiate for peace, the Klingon starts killing people. Uh, Mob kills, uh, dies trying to stop the Klingon. And then Scotty and crew, who are on a wild goose chase I alluded to earlier, finally arrive to sort of settle things down. Lovely. Thank you very much. Yes, it's, um, well, you said you said every episode is a lot, Kev, and I yes. think that's probably a fair description of this one. This episode is a lot, uh, but let's uh, start with some general thoughts. Um, Kev, how did you find it? I'm mixed on it. I, I This is kind of in that same zone as a lot of these season two episodes that are the less successful ones, um, better than Metamorphosis, but like, We've discussed things like a cat's paw and I mud and who mourns for Adonis, where it's like it's taking huge swings. But the swings in this aren't as big as those episodes. I'm gonna be a little less kind to it than I was almost unreasonably to those. But um it's there's just weird parts where like both 60s culture and Gene Roddenberry's obvious rewrites and things like that sort of bump up against what it's trying to accomplish. Um, but like I said. A couple times already now it's the having kirk mccoy and spock just together on screen is always just a fun time and as much as the b plot is kind of ridiculous it also gives the other four main crew members some good like face time on screen and yeah i don't know that stuff just really goes a long way as well as some like obviously on the limited 60s television budget but still some like fun action and things like that so yeah it's it's very watchable and it's entertaining, but yeah, there's a lot to chew over where it falls short. That that definitely seems like a, a fair assessment. Um, Daze, how did you find it? Have you seen this episode before or is this your first time through on it? This was my first time watching this episode and I, I had like read about it like in various ways. Like I, I was familiar with it, but this is the first time that I had actually like actually watched it. Um, I think I read about it when I was like researching a high school project on like portrayal of women on TV or something, um, because of course I did a project on that. Uh, but watching it through, it it just reminded me of of like how this is so traditional Star Trek, mm -hmm. but also it it has its it's trying to do what it can against its own restraints. Like there's you know running in the desert. That's you gotta love it. There's yeah. uh, alien society with different customs and traditions, mm -hmm. um, but also there's like there there's like the seeds of something that could be actually really 
like thought provoking there if they let it be what it could have been. Yeah, that seems that, that seems fair. It's it's definitely one of those episodes where you can you can see all the parts moving, but they're just not quite perfectly in sync. It's definitely one of those episodes for me that that being the uh, alleged expert uh, on this podcast is is kind of slightly does this episode in for me because I I know too much about how it was supposed to be written and like if you made reference to Gene Roddenberry's rather clumsy rewrites and I just really prefer the original version this is one of the very few Star Trek episodes as well where I've read the novelization uh it was done by James Blish um and I picked up uh, a copy from an old library sale when I was like probably like 11 or 12 for 25 pence or something (laughs) some some ridiculous sum of money and uh and the novelization of this episode is basically DC Fontana's original. It, it gets rid of all that um, Gene Roddenberry stuff. And I just feel it's better. And it's not fair to judge the episode with sort of paratextual input. I, I always say you should be, you know, if you're if you're reviewing an episode or whatever it is or discussing it, you should just be discussing what's on screen. But for some reason, I find that incredibly difficult with this story because I know that there is a better version of this story out here. And one which is kind of legitimate as well. You know, the novelizations were official, they were published, they were, you know, approved by everybody involved. So I don't know. It, it, it's not a bad episode. There's plenty to recommend it, but there's also a lot of stuff which is just so clunky and, and just doesn't come together. Yeah. I, I think if there's any episode to get metatextual on, it's definitely this one. Um, I did, I for once did more research than just reading Memory Alpha for this. I followed an external reference link from Memory Alpha to to an interview DC Fontana gave, like a section of a three and a half hour interview for the Television Academy, uh, like the Emmys organization, which I now want to dig into one day. I wish I had watched it for Journey to Babel as well, because it's like, the what little I skimmed on it just for the Friday's Child stuff was really great. Um, and she's talking about Journey to Babel right before that. But yes, uh, it she outright says that like she had an almost reverse um, thematic ideas for this episode. Um, like I mean, to get into it, she was talking about an ending where Julie Newmar's character sacrifices the child in some way to spare her own life. I mean, I don't know how that would have played out. I mean, you can give more shadow more light in this JG, but. It's about how women don't need children and can go sort of beyond that. And there's almost like a a little pro-choice in there, though, with a heavy 60s filter on it. But still, like, there's so much more meat in that rejecting the child. And so this TV show episode becomes entirely about, well, you need to have the child to keep going on and that will give your life purpose. It's such a reversal of what she wanted. It's just, and it just clumsily fits into the episode without sort of going, like, it's all, it is hard to talk this episode without those elements, because it's just such a crucial thing to it, and it explains so much about it otherwise. Yeah, originally, um, the the idea was uh, was that she had had an affair, and she's eventually mm-hmm. executed um, for, for that, um, but she kind of selfishly tries to bargain uh, with the Taal to in order to sort of preserve her life, like she'll give up the child as long as as uh, she's allowed to live. And it was it was based on this idea um, 
that DC Fontana had that it was sort of was kind of women's lib in a very 60s kind of way in the sense that it was a woman who wasn't just going to be defined by motherhood. It was a woman who wasn't just going to be defined by the need to have a child who didn't just become insta mom, just had baby, you know, and that was that was the tension between uh, Fontana and, and Roddenberry. And to be fair, I suppose if one must be, which I never am, but oh well, here we go. Uh, to be fair to Roddenberry, like there are a lot of people who prefer his version of the story, but I suspect that's because they can't kind of quite get out of their own heads or sort of see beyond their own noses to try and understand what it was the original kind of concept of the script doing. You know, a lot of the a lot of the people involved sort of complained um, that the character was, you know, unlikable. Well. Yeah, that's the point. The point is that the 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 active female character that we have in this episode isn't just falling into the lazy cliches. Aline is somebody who can step outside of kind of gender norms of uh, you know, nineteen sixty-seven and behave in a way that isn't appealing, that isn't maternal, that isn't all these kind of other things. She does, we see her act in at least to some extent selfishly in the episode, but it's just also kind of toned down and yeah the second the the baby arrives it's 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 straight into instamom i don't know i it's the 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 role that she serves in the episode in the first act at least is someone who is all i i hesitate to say conservative but definitely traditionalist and like you know i'm ready to die since you know that's just our that's how things work so i'm just gonna die right now and that that'll be that. And then later when she's like, yeah, nobody can touch me. That's that's punishable by death. She's very much sticking to the cultural norms and the way that they try to like counteract that is in the last little reveal that, oh, yeah, she's the she's the regent. You know, she's actually in charge. But all that does is make her life literally defined by her child. Yeah, it's. It's very sad in its way, just like, um, like Julie Newmar plays the character with presence and poise and like activity. Um, like you said, she becomes, and that gives it a little bit of juice. But at the end of the day, yeah, exactly what you said, Dave. She is just so defined by her child, which is exactly what uh, DC Fontana didn't want, and exactly what the character doesn't want at a certain point in the sh- in the episode. And yet, that's the way it has to happen because it is 60 television. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's I don't want to paint all 60 television the broad brush, having seen very little of it. But this definitely feels in line with sort of the cultural norms at the time, in a very, in a way, it's like hurts the show actively. Oh, absolutely. You can see there's rewrites all over this era, and it's funny. It, I was thinking about Julian Namor while I was watching this, and I realized the voice that she does. Uh, is very, very similar to the voice she did the preceding year uh, on Beverly Hillbillies. So I ended up watching a little bit of Beverly Hillbillies. She plays Ula, a Swedish actress who's uh, sent as a maid to the Clampets to research their dialect for a role. It's very fun. Uh, But then I just got into like watching a couple episodes of that and just thinking about 60s television and literally anything that could be controlled like in just using Beverly Hillbillies as an example you have uh 
a, a female character who is just a secretary. And that is like the only woman in a job that we see pretty much for the entire run of the entire show. Like there's a fashion designer, there's a school teacher. Those are the only jobs women are allowed to have. It's it ran rampant. And in the 1960s, you'd think, oh, well, that's the era of, you know, a bunch of other shows. But it, it took a very, very long time for that to reach the mainstream. And what's peculiar about it in this episode is that this is actually one of the biggest roles we've seen for Nichelle Nicole so far. She's on screen mm-hmm. for a long time in this episode. Oh, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. she's she's present in the first briefing. I don't remember if she gets a line. I don't think that she does. But she's there. She, oh, she does, because she relays something down from the bridge. Like, she's clearly significant. She is, uh, you know, advising Scotty. She's got lots of stuff to do. You know, it's it's a really you know, by Uhura standards, it's a really meaty role for her. And we have that weird contrast where we can have on one hand, you know, an African-American woman who's, you know, clearly competent at her job. Her her presence is the whole thing. That's, that's the whole part of the progressive aspect of the show. And then, you know, down on the surface of the planet, we have this, you know, much more traditional uh, role for, for well, I say women, a woman. Uh, let's not exaggerate the number of women that there are on this planet. <laughs> um, we have one, and we should be grateful for it. Um, it's you know, it's it's such a weird contrast, and and that's it's that kind of failure of imagination. You know that like they can see on the one hand how progressive it is to to have Uhura in the bridge, to have Nichelle Nicole to be so prominent in the show, and then on the other hand, just fall back on kind of these lazy maternal cliches. And I I, I don't want to judge this episode by contemporary standards. That's not a reasonable metric to judge it by. But because you have those two characters side by side, Elaine and Uhura, in the same episode, it isn't judging it by contemporary standards. It's judging it by the standards of the time. And the story on the planet uh, is lacking by comparison. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we do. There is another woman, but she exists for one shot in the first thing to be like, oh, no, don't touch the women. That's a trap. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah yeah sorry you're right one other woman i i do apologize i have greatly undersold the episode <laughs> that's twice as many worth a little basket of fruit and her i dream a genie outfit and all that um, and and the sexy music as she walks in yeah. and, and kirk's practically uh looney tunes boy yo 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 yoing eyes as well yeah it's 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 not greatly progressive yeah, it's it's Kirk being like, ah, I know how Star Trek episodes work. This is it. This is my romantic part of the episode. <laughs> and then, of course, there's a little twist there. But yeah, it's it definitely is falling into that same sort of thing they do all the time on this show, which doesn't do a great service to a woman. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Speaking of like Uhura and the other people on the bridge, like I do think this is where DC Fun has experience as sort of like part of the triumvirate that's sort of on the show this time between her and the two genes like that is like kind of why it sort of proves why she's there and what she brings to the table is she does all this character stuff so well like as ludicrous as that scotty b plot is it's one of the first b plots the show has ever done maybe the first i'm trying to think of another time where it like cut away from the main action for that long with period of time besides like spock's little gag in mirror mirror or something like that but it's a significant story of Scotty doing on this wild goose chase. And 
yeah, there's not much that comes of it, but you do get a lot of uh, like James Montgomery and uh, George Takei and Michelle Nichols, of course, and uh, Walter Koenig, like the four of them, like dip to banter, hold their own, do a lot of sci-fi speak. It's not meaty material to eat up, feast on, but they're like, it's nice to see the show like really expand these supporting roles into they can carry their own story. Yeah, it's not often that we get to see them all having uh, that kind of... By the way, uh, um, James Doohan, not James Montgomery. I know it's a mistake oh, you always make. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite all right. But yeah, no, I mean, they all they all do get plenty to do. And this is, this, is, this is only Chekhov's second appearance in the show in terms of production. I know we're covering these things in broadcast order. This is only Chekhov's second episode. Um, and it is so far one of the very rare instances we've had. In fact, I'm wondering if it's even the first instance where we've had um, uh, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Scotty, Sulu, and Chekhov, like the full classic lineup in Hura. So it, it's, it's, it's everyone. Everyone gets something to do. Uh, okay, Chekhov isn't as maybe as much used as, as the other characters, but he's still there. He's doing his thing, and and everybody gets to have their little bit. It, I think you would. I never really think of this episode as being an ensemble episode, but I suppose it kind of is. But maybe it's that. Maybe it's because the crew are split up into two like very separate and distinct storylines. It doesn't quite have that feel to it. But nevertheless, it has that um, opportunity to give everyone like really meaty roles, and that extends to McCoy in this episode as well. Like, I think this really is the biggest part that McCoy has had so far. Oh yeah, that's that was such a highlight for for me at least. Um that he gets to have like he gets to be basically the kirk of the episode mm-hmm. he he gets to have the moment with the lady he gets to you know uh experience the the alien culture and you know stumble along that way and he's the one that everybody like latches on to yeah it's a really good episode for mccoy and for deforest kelly it's definitely putting him in the spotlight in a way like earning that like promotion to main title cast member um yeah he does a great job too like centering the episode um like of course shatner has to be like the action lead who does all the fun cool beating up and shoot bows and arrows and things like that but uh yeah it really does like mccoy's interaction with this culture is really key to this episode yeah and does that mean that we could talk about the slap yes i i think we have to talk about the slap Yes, much like uh, 2023, 2022 Oscars, it's time to talk about the slap. Uh, I've been thinking a lot, and I know it's just because I'm, I'm taking a class on Shakespeare, but I've been thinking a lot about how we frame violence towards women in a turn, like, in a way. But the more I thought about that scene, the more I thought about like him trying to ascertain like power, I honestly saw it in a weird, twisted way as a way of giving her agency because uh, he kept saying like, you know, oh, this child is yours and all this when really he needed to like meet her on her level. And that is apparently what did it. It's it's very hard to parse because, you know, that is a fictional culture, but it it honestly I saw it as weirdly respectful <laughs> As far as a slap can be, but in a way that that seemed to like try it, it was a way that that was more about 
communicating more than uh, trying to establish and dominate. Yeah, I, I'm with you. It's like 2024 eyes on the surface, not a great moment. I mean, even in 60s eyes, probably not a great moment. But like at the same time, you can tell it's trying for something beyond what you're saying. It's not about like abuse of woman. It is about like breaking the taboo and snapping her out of it. And like it, there's a different context to it that just reads wrong to people decades later. And that's just happens when you're talking about 60s television. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting moment for sure. I, I, you wouldn't write that moment today, but I feel like you can also approach it as it was intended at the time. I don't think that it was even meant to be like acceptable at that time. I feel like right. what it's really playing at is the fact that this, that's, if she's more oppressed sticking with her original uh, like practices and the slap is the thing that it's like, look, I, this is, I'm going to touch you and everything's going to be fine. You're not going to die. And look, it, we're all good. And you slap me back and now we're on the same level. I think the other thing is, is reading the, the slap is um, a sexist move uh cuts against the grain of everything else that's in the episode like we we do get that establishment of this being a culture which is um very sort of similar to the klingons they are um i don't want to say martial is maybe too strong but they're certainly uh, uh a culture that revels in violence who take that as part of their everyday lives who aren't squeamish about um about fighting about violence about killing um and so having her slapped in that way after she slapped McCoy twice. So we actually, so we do get an establishment of that kind of uh, part of their culture within the scene. We have, we have all of those details sort of littered throughout the episode. So we know that this isn't just something which is, well, slap a woman, she'll fall into line. It's not that kind of sixties misogyny. It is part of their culture like i said like you would never have that as something that was written now but in order to read that moment as sexist or misogynist i think you then have to ignore pretty much the rest of the episode and, and you know that there will be or well, there are definitely some people who will do that but i think if you're giving this episode an, like, an honest read you have to acknowledge that 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 part of their culture is explicitly displayed not just throughout the episode, but in that specific scene as well. It's, it's strange because, like, from 2024, we, we want to look back and be like, Ugh, we knew nothing back then, you know. We, we were just put any, any old thing on TV. When really, the entire episode is trying to, like... I mean, the thing that I kept coming back to is the sanctity of life. Mm -hmm. uh, there's... The, the Klingon and the Capellan cultures, they're both like, you know, people live, people die, and that's whatever. And then McCoy comes in, he's like, wow, this child is so beautiful, and mm -hmm. we're going to live and live in harmony and all this. And I, I think that uh, it's easy to see everything that the older shows like this put on TV as uh, endorsement. And with this episode in particular, it can be easy to fall into that trap. But I think there's a lot more nuance than even nostalgia can imbue on it. 
Yeah, I fully agree with that. It's I, I definitely DC Fontana. I, I again getting to the murky meta ness of this. It's hard to say if she wrote the slap or not. But like, I'll if she did, I see where she's going for. And if she didn't, I see where Gene Roddenberry is going for. I guess, or it's just yeah, it's you're developing a culture more than you are like like there's more at play here than just that act. It's and that is the hallmark of a lot of these scientists we've talked about is how into like these alien cultures she gets and like developing these societies. I mean, just last week we talked about Journey to Babel, which is her other big episode she wrote this season um, so far. And that one introduces the Tellarites and the Andorians and some other minor races and like gets into Vulcan stuff. It's she's very clearly fascinated by alien culture and like how it interacts with what we perceive as normal or not. And that depiction is obviously not always endorsement. So yeah, it's, it is like way up her alley to be doing material like this that is tricky and thorny and exploring these ideas. That the, they don't really mention is the fact that she does not want to be pregnant. I that's yes. that's the thing that stuck with me the most is like, oh my gosh, that's something that they that regardless of you know whether or not they're portraying an alien race or not, that's something that is not seen as that's something you would never put on television unless you had many the distance of science fiction oh yeah absolutely and i think one of the things that the episode suffers from in terms of that repositioning of uh Eileen's character is the, the the tension that is set up between her not wanting to be pregnant um and between mccoy's desire to to you know basically personified liberal humanism uh, is is a really great kind of dramatic engine for the episode to focus on. And when uh, you have a reading of the episode where uh, Elaine is, is like unsympathetic, doesn't want the child, doesn't want the baby, uh, doesn't want to be a mother, and the episode follows through on that, I think that tension is, is much more sort of dramatically interesting. I do think it's for all that I prefer the, the Fontana version of that, I think it's interesting that she, after she's given birth, like she is prepared to um, take steps that aren't just uh, straightforwardly uh, nice in a kind of 60s fashion. You know, like she is prepared to die in order to protect her child. The the, the vault fast is far, far, far too quick and, and it, it, it doesn't land for, for the reasons we've discussed. Um, but at, at least we still see the strength of character there. And of course, that's the thing that has been irreducible from DC Fontana's writing. She's always amazingly good at constructing characters, whether it's our regulars or whether it's our sort of one shots for this episode. Some, some of the, some of the natives on the planet aren't great, but that's, I think more down to the actors than it is necessarily the way that they've been scripted. But yeah, at least, at least the strength of the character comes through and, you know, Julie Newmar just does a great job overall. So that helps to paper over at least some of the gap as well. Yeah. I'm just thinking about sort of the not wanting the child thing. It is such a rare topic for television to cover. Um, like, for decades. The only one I can think of, and I'm pretty sure this is the only example, I would love to correct if I'm wrong, but there was, I had to look this up because it was featured in a Mad Men episode. There's a legal uh, thriller called The Defenders, where um, in a 1962 episode, 
the father or some legal team at the center of the show defended an abortion care provider. And that was caused a lot of advertisers to drop out. Um, I learned about this from Mad Men, but I know I knew it was a real incident. Uh, and yeah, it's was a huge controversy for obvious reasons. And that's kind of the only way, especially at this time period, television has touched abortion until like much later. So it's obviously this episode isn't really about that because the child gets born and there's not even a talk of like terminating it in that way. Um, even Fontana's little script had the child's life terminated after that. <laughs> but I do think it's hinting at this very taboo topic in that indirect way, which is legitimately envelope pushing. Like the idea of a mom not wanting a kid they're pregnant with is very radical and it definitely deserves credit for it. Even if the end result isn't fully successful at making a radical statement, nor does it have to be, but yeah, it's, that's just so wild that it pushes that at all. Yeah. Again, I think they get away with this because the reason she doesn't want the child isn't because like, Oh, I want to go out and party, you know, or I, I don't feel ready for a child because that's when you get into the whole, like, well, then you should be more careful, blah, 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 preachiness. But with this episode is specifically because in our culture, if a child doesn't have a father, then there is no, it doesn't belong to anyone. Um, And the, it's it's wild because the, the same sort of thing, like the, I was waiting for you to bring up the Defenders because I was just like, I know I've seen Mad Men. Um, <laughs> but the other thing that I kept thinking about was the Maud episode, uh, Maud's Dilemma, which is the first time that we would see abortion discussed on like mainstream television uh, in, a, in a way where, you know, a character that char- like a character that fans know considers abortion and that was because she was 47 and she has you know an adult daughter who's like yeah mom if you want to get an abortion you can and that was in like in 1970 uh 1972 so it would take another considerable amount of time for this to be brought up but i think there's enough distance here the fact that you know it wasn't motivated by uh, the American, you know, mainstream culture, and it was never even discussed. It was just the fa- fact of, you know, I do not want this child. I do not want to be pregnant for X reasons. That I, I think is it's honestly very impressive. I even if it doesn't stick the landing, that it even got on the airwaves. Full credit to, like the yeah, the suggestion of the idea is like more than enough to at least feel like they did something here and that is that is again the weird tension at the heart of this episode we can see quite clearly what it is it's trying to achieve and how progressive this looks in terms of the late 60s and and broadcast media at the time and yet like it you say like it doesn't stick the landing but it really doesn't stick the landing yeah and that's that's kind of the that's kind of the big problem we like we have all these like weird dichotomies like uh, sort of between elaine and ahura like this progressiveness and then the extreme kind of reactionary oh well i guess she just wants to be a mother now um you know they ha- she has a position of power but it's a position of power which is completely defined by the child you know there's no sense that um you know that a, a woman could ascend to a-, a position of power you know all we ever really see are are men in positions of authority it's such a 
it's such a weird, unbalanced script. And yeah, we know that that's partly because of the chunky rewrites, but but what makes it to screen just doesn't make that much sense. I mean, it makes it makes sense within the episode, you know, it's scripted logically, but it just, it feels like it falls so short of what could be. And, um, you know, a lot of what we want to buy into as far as Elaine is concerned is her place within this culture. But this culture's rubbish. It's yeah. very hard to get, uh, you know, all that uh, invested in uh, Capella 4. Uh, you know, uh, presumably they do lots of really close harmony singing without any instrumentation on their off days. Uh, yeah. um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I do apologize. Uh, but they're just so, uh, like, again, as scripted, they're all right. But the performances are not good. And that is at least in part because the actors have been cast for height rather than acting ability. Right. I think that, I think that does rather come across. Although we we hear in the opening introduction, McCoy saying, oh, you know, like it's, it's very common to see these, you know, over seven feet tall. Yes, but we're not going to meet anybody like that <laughs> because the best we can manage is six foot six. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's fair enough. I'm not going to judge them too harshly for that, but they're just, they're just kind of limp and really kind of difficult to be invested in. Mob is just irritating. A car is, is just your bog standard medieval sci-fi guy in a throne. It's, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of there there. And so if we want to sort of analyze Eileen's position within this culture, we need to have a better sense of what that uh, culture is. But so much of that culture is men go rawr. And that's not good. Yeah, she doesn't really have a point of view as the next leader either. She's just going to keep leading, I guess. Like, there's no, there's nothing she wants to change. There's nothing she's, like, pro or against being this regent all of a sudden. She just kind of is. And, yeah, there's there's no point of view on the culture itself, which does, I think, like, make them feel a lot flatter. Yeah, I wish that we had an epilogue with her where we saw her in power and we saw her like casually, you know, say, "Hey, this maybe maybe we aren't running things the right way. Maybe it's, just, it's I just want like a King and I moment where the little kid takes over and then everything's modern again, uh, which is reductive in its own way. But I, I wish that we were able to see her a be in a position of power because as it stands now, we we are just hear about it and it happens off screen. And, like, B, that we see her acknowledge that she's been exposed to a different way of doing things and now is questioning what she knows. That would forgive a lot of sins. But that's conspicuous by its absence. Exactly. And it's, again, it's it's such a shame. Um, oh, God, we haven't even talked about Uchi Kuchi Koo. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh. yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I think I have a feeling I, that would have been anachronistic in 1967. Never mind 2024, but uh, like it's yeah. it's like I get what they're going for, but it's you know, cute. again, it's it's, it's leaning hard into that. Well, everything's back in traditional, like what it should be. It's what sells me on it is uh, DeForest Kelly going in on it. Like it's a very, it's a character break in a funny way that you get good mileage out of the gruff doctor doing the coochie coochie. It's, it's, that's just what helps it. It's a, it, there's a lot of problems with it as you're ending at, but 
I, it, is, it did put a little smile on my face. I was like, oh, well, Kelly's clearly having fun doing this little bit. And then Kirk gets the banter with Spock about it. That's that's the stuff that Fontana always does so well. And, like, the real saving graces of the episode are as, as coochie-coochie-coo as, like, a little nauseating as it is, like, the way the characters embody that moment is what helps it sell. And the end, the little tag bit about the kid being named uh, Leonard James. Oh, yeah. I, oh. I I still like these end of the episode ship bits. They Sometimes they don't hit, but this one I had fun with. Yeah, like, let them be smug. Uh, I think it is helpful, the fact that McCoy's not really a dad. He's more of, like, a, a fun uncle kind of vibe. Right. <laughs> Just hanging out. Um, and it's like, hey, you should take things easier. Um, and the the whole language around, you know, this child is ours, you know, becomes less of a big deal when they start joking about it. And then it's like, oh, thank God. It's not going to become some weird, like, oh, you must stay and help raise the child. I was so afraid I was going to go that direction. Thank God I didn't. That's that's not that's not really a Captain Kirk modus operandi settling down to be responsible. Yeah. <laughs> I think we were I think we were always off the hook there. It is also one of the few moments that like Spock really gets that much to do. He's he's really sidelined in this story. He gets like, a couple of funny lines and he helps with the construction of uh, and and you can just imagine how big my air quotes are here. Bows and arrows. Um, <laughs> oh, those are great. Rate. Uh, they mm-hmm. definitely come from like a kids' cowboys and Indians set in the 1960s. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I love that this yeah. is a race that's developed like ninja stars, but not bows and arrows. Right. <laughs> you know, right. there is a kind of interesting. I actually quite like that detail. There's a, there's yeah. a very interesting thing that I I got to. I, I studied uh, English and history at, at university, and I had a history lecturer. Uh, that told me that one of the kind of the fascinating details um, about the Roman Empire is that obviously they were quite technologically developed, uh, you know, for the time. And they had technology that conceivably could have been used to make audio recordings. It would have just been like a wax cylinder and a needle, but they could have done it. But it never occurred to anyone to do that because that's not how that society functions. It's called a failure of conceptualization is the term for it. Um, and I quite like the fact that, like, you know, they have got these weapons, like throwing stars or whatever, but it never occurred to anyone to build a bow and arrow. I think that's a nice little detail and actually does help this to feel like it's slightly another culture. I know it's just a throwaway thing because it means that we can contrive a way for Spock and McCoy, uh, Spock and Kirk to uh, like have some kind of edge in, in, in the fight. But it's a, a nice kind of little detail. I, I kind of like that. Yeah, they have ranged weapons, but stealth isn't exactly on their on their list of priorities. Well, I mean, it's hard to be stealth in a sort of purple mm. fake fur cloak. So, you know, <laughs> camouflage isn't that high up. Yeah, exactly. Camouflage isn't that high up their list of priorities either. Uh, yeah, and I, I, the weapons are, like, very interesting. They're like, like I said, ninja stars meets boomerangs kind of things. Like, it's just, like, like I said, it's a great world-building detail. It doesn't have to be much more than that. And it's, yeah, it, it really speaks to the, like, depth DC Fantana thought through this script and a lot of elements of it, even if some of those fall short, whether it's her fault or not. Speak, I just, I have one last thought, thinking of Spock having not much to do in this episode. Uh, this is our first and only time Spock is going to get lose and get knocked out in a fight, apparently. 
Really? Um, the only other time Leonard Nimoy character would lose a fight is in Mirror Mirror, but that's Mirror Spock. So yeah, a, a, per memory alpha. So we'll see if that claim holds up for the rest of this podcast. But it seems like this is the only time he's knocked out and incapacitated. And that really doesn't affect him much here. No, no. I think Spock's having an off day in this episode. I think he can't really be bothered with his piddling little planet and its story. It's like, right, okay, I'm going to beam down. I'm going to trail after the captain for yet another bunch of bloody natives who don't want to appreciate the nice things we've got for them. Fine, I'll get to make a bit of a quip at the end of the episode. And next week, we can just move on with our lives. I, I I think he's having an off day. Yeah, you can't really, um, we can't really do our regular boy Shatner and Nimoy are really great in the show segments here because they don't really have much to do in this episode. But so, good for DeForest Kelly. Yeah, good. For, he's he's the one getting the heat uh, and he's great. But uh, yeah, not much to say about either their performances or what their characters do beyond what has already been said. Um, I Speaking of the combat, there's just one detail I really loved in the initial scene where... Um, either Kirk or McCoy, I can't remember which one, touches Aileen, and they learn about the no-touching-woman law, and there's, like, the initial fight between Kirk and Spock and the guards. McCoy just, like, casually surrenders and backs into a guy who takes him hostage. Um, I just, <laughs> I don't know if that's just lazy choreography or, like, a great character note from either Fontana or Kelly, but whatever it is, I loved it. It was just like, oh, yeah, he would he just doesn't want to do a deal with this. Yeah, there's so many moments like that that I, I that are just like just little nice, nice little moments. Like mm-hmm. there, there's a there's an all timer red shirt moment at the beginning of this episode. Oh, yeah, just truly <laughs> one of the best. Uh, and the way that the way that Kirk just kind of looks at <laughs> like what just happened, it, 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 he's so confused by it, but also at the same time he's just like with that seriously it's just so many like it, it it's something that you expect absolutely but it, it just happens in a way that becomes so shocking in a way that's also ridiculous i'm sorry to say this but that red shirt deserved to die yeah <laughs> what that's an a idiot a oh, Klingon. Look, somebody, a Klingon. Oh, well, and I'm dead. Yeah, says you right. Yeah, like, yeah, it's not a great judgment on Kirk's part for taking somebody that dumb down to a planet um, or anywhere for that matter. Uh, and I know, you know, like generally speaking, red shirts aren't known for their perception and intellectual abilities. But that one is really like, yeah, this is a difficult red shirt to have much sympathy for. He's yeah. young and unexperienced. <laughs> I also had to rewind that scene because I could not spot the Klingon because I forgot they hadn't invented the ridged foreheads yet. And (laughs) the costuming was, I mean, granted, better than the first time we saw them in terms of problematicness. But because of it was toned down and even more like like, conspicuous, I guess, more blending in and not standing out. Uh, They just look, he looks like a guy here. Yeah. Especially without the unfortunate bronzer or whatever. Yeah, he's a little shorter and a little tanner. Yeah. So good for them, I guess. I guess all of the like making them look different stuff went to the Capellans. Yeah, to to limited effect, I would have to say. Oh, absolutely. But uh, I also like I was I obviously I did a bit of reading in the background and whatever, and um the credits of the episode and memory alpha. 
and a couple of other sources all refer to the Klingon as as Crass. Oh, they must have been up all night thinking of that name. But mm. I don't remember him ever actually being called that on screen. I think he's only ever Klingon. Uh, I don't remember him ever actually being named. Yeah. But he's it does seem to be the name in all of the all the kind of reference material. So maybe it might have just been that I missed it. And by the time, maybe maybe it happens once and, just, you know, when when the the mighty red shirt attacks him, maybe maybe he's named there and I was too busy laughing. Like that, that's also possible. I, it probably was one of those things where it was he was named in the script, but there just wasn't a dialogue or a cut dialogue that actually used the name. Um, I just tabbing over the crassest page of memory alpha. It looks like he was supposed to come back for Trouble with Triples, but the actor couldn't do it. So, um, yeah, the, this cost this Caucasoid Klingon is what it refers to him. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, there's not much to say about the Klingons here beyond like solidifying them as like a recurring threat uh, when they were just a one-off threat in the first season, which is nice world building, I guess. And then the again that well, I mean I. Don't think we have to directly talk about the whole wild goose chase thing beyond the character moments, which we already discussed. It's just so silly. But at least it's like something for the Klingons to do as well and not just hang around. And yeah, even, yeah so that's that. They needed a, a way to stop them from being like, hey, we got a lady down here. Can right. you just like, please help us out here? Um, and... But then again, they take away their communicators, so they could have just been chilling up there, being like, "Huh, I guess they had yeah. their communicator com- communicators taken away." Like, but I'm glad that we get to see them. I'm just, it's, it's a shame that that's what they're doing. Just what really gets me is Scotty saying, "Well, fool me once, shame on them. Fool me twice, shame on me." But let's do another sweep to be sure. And <laughs> fool me three times. I don't know. Make make just to make absolutely sure we're being fooled. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, we've definitely been fooled. All right, amble back at warp five. Don't put your foot down or anything. Just take your time. Warp six if you feel like it, but no hurry. That's fine. We'll just, just toddle along. We have to make sure that the three that are on the planet get a dramatic resolution. Because if we turn up too early, that's not going to happen. Yeah. And the line at the end where he's like, I guess the cavalry won't come just in time is already a little old-fashioned for the 60s mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a little yeah. like oh don't forget there's a john wayne movie on in an hour um but then the cavalry do show up just in time <laughs> well also i mean it's not something that we've really talked about um but i think it is worth mentioning in passing just how much this episode is basically just a western it's pretty straightforwardly that a lot of the the Capellans, um, particularly with their slightly stilted way of speaking, uh, you know, it recalls a lot of the way that Native Americans would be portrayed in kind of westerns of that time. Ah, I have no interest in sky and all this kind of stuff. You know, it's it's a bit. It it it's not heavy handed enough to be kind of racially insensitive i don't think i'm happy to be corrected on that um but it's definitely drawing on you know this week the planets are you know people that you know last week and probably next week will be in some western with slightly silly less silly hair pieces it's a very western 
kind of thing. And right down to like the, the you know, the, the, the native girl who's been knocked up and she's running away and, but she wants to go back and da, 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 da. like there's so many Westerns that, that follow that pattern. And, and yeah, the, like the, the whole language thing, with, and their odd patterns of speech came around because earlier on in the episode's development, um, somebody commented, um, that's fine, but how come everyone on the planet speaks English? Because like most of Star Trek, you can kind of fiddle around it if there's like a superior being or if it's on a ship, then they can have universal translators or whatever. Um, and rather than kind of trying to do much about that, they gave them this slightly stilted, way of speaking and sometimes it works like the way that uh, elaine pronounces mccoy is is relatively effective like it's an unfamiliar word like she's not used to putting those syllables in that kind of order that's kind of successfully but but a lot of the a lot of the dialogue that mob gets and that a car gets it, it does have that kind of very um we're just writing them as what would have in 1967 been referred to as indians um it's not again the episode's finest moment yeah, I do appreciate the linguistic uh fidelity in the repetition of uh vowels. So we have like the T R ak R and L E N and all these sorts of like they have a distinct thing. And that translates into when she says makoi, she is giving that sort of separation of vowels to his name, which I think is cool. Yeah, it's it's a great world building detail. It's uh, I like it's like I said, it's another strength of Fontana's is that like consistency of details and imagination for details. Um, yeah, it's a shame the rest of the culture doesn't have some of that imagination. Uh, I just have one more note before we get into ratings, and that is just something I gleaned from the interview, not really to this episode at all. But I just want to shout it out. Uh, DC Fontana was asked what her least favorite episode to work on as a script editor was, and for some reason she said the Doomsday Machine, which. He was like, it's not my thing. And you know what? I guess respect. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I, it's not one I would agree with, but then I didn't script edit. I just have to sit there and watch it. And I thought it was kind of great. So uh, yeah. yeah, but you know, one of the nice things about uh, DC Frontana is she's bracingly free of kind of party, poli- uh, party politics when it comes to Star Trek. So often when you hear people interviewed for Star Trek, it's everything. It's just like party line. Oh, yes, Gene Roddenberry was a, you know, a clairvoyant genius and, and, you know, architect of our future and blah, 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 blah. Like DC Fontana just cuts through all of that. Like she does not care. And I kind of love her for that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Lovely. Right. Well, I think we're probably drawing to the end of our discussion for this episode and it's time to move to ratings. I am going to give myself a pat on the back this time and go first. Um, and I think I'm just going to give this a six and a half. I, I do admire the ambition that made it to screen, but I don't think enough of it made it to screen. And the, the Capellans are kind of a bit weak and feeble. Julie Newmar, absolutely brilliant. The rest of them, yeah, you know, not so much. So I am going to go for six and a half out of 10. Uh, Kev, what would you like to give it? I'm in that similar zone. I'm going to give it a six. I was really equivocating between five and six, that sort of bottom half, good half of the rating scales line. But yeah, I think just the ambition of what it's trying to do. And it's also still entertaining. I didn't lose interest. Like, like Metamorphosis is not only an important episode, it's also a boring one. But compared to this, this is just like still very watchable. So yeah, I'm going to go with the six. 
Lovely. Thank you very much. And Dace, what would you like to give it? I think I'm going to go with a seven. I was going to give it a six, but I'm going to give it just one oomph for uh, having at least something alluding to something to say. Uh, I obviously like the version of this that I made up in my head a lot better, which I think is a tempting trap to fall into when reviewing something. But uh, just looking at what made it onto screen and from my lens, I think Seven is, it was boring. It was watchable. It had things to say, kind of. But I think just in terms of what I like to see on TV, it's a Seven. Excellent. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Good. Right. We can leave the episode there and move on to recommendations. Uh, Kev, why don't you go first this week? What would you like to recommend? I haven't finished this show yet, and it'll be a little um, a month old when it comes out, when this episode comes out. So I this is have that qualification on recommending it. But I am enjoying the first half of Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I've seen the first four of the eight episodes of the new 2024 show on Amazon starring Donald Glover and Maya Erskine, Skine, how you say it. Um, it I think it is uh, really good. Uh, the biggest selling point, they are 45-minute episodes that are mission of the week. Um, the other big selling point is I think Donald Glover and Francesca Sloan, who's sort of the main showrunner, she's also wrote in Atlanta, and they bring a lot of that Atlanta sort of casual surrealism energy i guess is the best way i could describe it like a lot of that comes through mr and mrs smith as well things sort of happen that are like really outlandish and the characters reacting kind of muted and like well what am i supposed to do about that ways um it has a great vibe to it i think glover and erskine's chemistry are like really good they play off each other fantastically and yeah it's it's a great flip of the movie's premise, which I think is more in line with the original TV show, where they both know each other as a spy and they're in a sort of arranged marriage to carry out these missions. And the tension there is just really good. Uh, so yeah, I'm a huge fan of the first half of the scene so far. It's gotten some great guest stars as well. And yeah, it's it's been really entertaining. So I recommend Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I covered that, and I remember referring to it as the Americans, but for real this time. They're for sure Americans. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Thanks very much, Kev. Uh, Dace, what would you like to recommend? Oh, boy. Well, I'm going to show my, my privilege here a little bit, because the first thing that came to mind was that I had the illustrious honor to interview Vera Drew, the director of The People's Joker, uh, this week, which means I saw The People's Joker and I have never cried so much at a movie about the Joker. <laughs> it is honestly one of the weirdest, most touching, accurate portrayals of just queer coming of age, coming of age in general, coming of age in the arts. Uh, but if I were to uh, something a little more accessible, uh, I've been also been watching The Traders Australia, which is, by in in my opinion, the best of the the, the newfound franchise uh, episode. I want to say seven. It's probably one of my favorite episodes of reality TV of all time, and I'm a connoisseur. Uh, it's it does a lot of fun stuff with uh, editing and structuring the the, the game in a in a really nice narrative way. And it even has like a three act structure. It's really cool. 
I've heard amazing things about both people's Jokers and all incarnations of the Traders. Um, and yeah, I, I really want to see people's Joker when it comes to Rexas. So that sounds way up my alley and really great. And I have no excuse for the Traders. So I should just get on it eventually. <laughs> yeah, start with Australia and work from there. Okay. Lovely, thanks. Uh, yeah, and of course, we always want connoisseurs on this show because what better people could we have for recommendations? Um, I'm going to go for a movie this week. Uh, I'm going to go for The Zone of Interest, um, which I saw earlier on this week. Uh, it is a very uh, bleak Holocaust film, uh, but it's pretty great. I don't think it's flawless. It's been really interesting to kind of see the the dialogue around the film. It's uh, written and directed by Jonathan Glazer, who also wrote uh, another one of my favorite films, uh, Under the Skin. And it is just, uh, as I directed, I should say, uh, it's just an amazing uh, piece of work. It's really fascinating to see the way that it is put together. It's about a, a family uh, who are basically... Uh, housed outside the Auschwitz concentration camp. It's uh, the, the lead character is uh, Rudolf Haas, who's the commandant of uh, Auschwitz. Uh, he's based on a real-life figure. Um, and Jonathan Glazer has described it, I think, fairly accurate. It's kind of like watching two films at the same time. So you have what you're watching on the screen, which is kind of the sort of fairly mundane, day-to-day -day kind of uh, things that uh, a family will go through kids are playing, they have a party, a mother comes to visit, etc, etc. But at the same time, you're also listening to the soundtrack. So you hear uh, you hear screams, you hear the crack of uh, rifles, um, but it's all quite distant. Sound design is beyond brilliant. It's an amazing piece of work, the sound design. Uh, and it's it, it sounds like proper guns it's not it's not kind of uh you know big loud kind of movie guns and it, it it's it's shot in a very locked off way as well which kind of helps to distance you from it uh, there's almost uh no panning no zooming no uh not even even the camera doesn't really follow a line almost everything is shot sort of almost middle distance it's a really really fascinating approach it's not quite flawless it, it kind of makes its point and then kind of keeps making it um but it is a genuinely fascinating uh piece of cinema so uh, yeah that's the the zone of interest it's 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 really worth watching but fair warning it, it's not an easy watch yeah, I, I've stayed away from it for that reason, the non-easy watch reason. I Maybe I'll get around to it, but I just can't imagine going to the theater for that. Oh, my God. And I've seen some pretty dark movies in theaters, but yeah, it's it's the one, it's unusual for me because sometimes I turn my nose up at a lot of Best Picture nominees, but it's a really good crop this year um, with uh, Maestro Accepted. I'll just say Maestro Accepted. I did not like that one at all. But um, at least Zone of Interest is the only one I haven't seen. And yeah, that's a tough mountain to climb, but um, maybe I'll do it. If it comes to my small town, I'm going to see it. Who knows? They got fallen leaves randomly, so uh -oh. we'll see. Lovely. Okay, fantastic. Well, I think we can move on from our recommendations and do some plugs. So, uh, Dace, what would you like to plug? Yeah, well, like I said, uh, I'm a staff writer over at Inverse.com. We've got some really cool stuff uh, coming up uh, recently. Uh, I'm excited to be talking about People's Joker more, uh, and we'll see what else is going on. Um, and also, I'm at Twitter, at the good old days, with a D-A-I-S, um, if you want to see me yell about stuff. <laughs> 
I think we'd all love to see you yell about stuff. That sounds absolutely fabulous. Okay, brilliant. And Kev, would you care to tell people how they can get in touch with us? Yes, you can find us on Twitter at TalkTrekToYou, BlueSky at TalkingTrekToYou. Um, I'm on BlueSky at Max Rebo's Roadie, and my other podcast is Total Massacre, where me, Ron Kaiser, and Kali Volucci talk about sci-fi movies. Uh, that's We're doing a schlocky month in February, and now in March, I think... We don't know what our March theme yet, uh, so just tune in and you'll see. Um, and JG, can, other writing, can be found at jgmccory.scott, and his other podcast is Beatles Sophology, going through the Beatles track by track. I believe you're still in Beatles for Sale era if, at this point. So, yeah, check those out, and please like, rate, review, and subscribe. We are. Podcast. We did the last episode okay. today. Oh, wonderful. Like, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast and whatever podcatcher you use to help other people find it. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And this, thank you very much for joining us on this uh, little trek. Of course. So much fun. Wonderful. Okay. And then for this episode, we can leave it there. Next week, it's time to face the deadly years. What could be more fun? Of course, as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking. Keep talking.